Good morning, everybody. And uh, before we get started, since we can't ever pray too much, let's open in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us together to get today. We thank you for giving us your word, and we thank you for giving us your spirit, which teaches us to abide by your word and to walk with you. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, as, we, as we come to your word this morning, that you would glorify your name in us and that you would make us more like you. And that each of us, whether it's me speaking or anybody who is hearing, would um, just be edified by the power of your spirit. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, it's truly an honor to be up here again, to uh, have the opportunity to bring the Word of God to everybody who's here and to lead our time together. You know, as I was preparing for uh, this morning, I kept thinking about various texts of Scripture that meant a lot to me or what the Lord has been working on in my life or in the life of our family. And the passages that kept coming up were the passages that have to do with our adoption as children and as believers into the family of God. And so that's what we're going to be spending most of our time this morning talking about. And so for those of you who have had the privilege of being a father, I'm sure that you would agree that it's a pretty amazing thing. And the Lord in his good will has seen fit to grow our family from a family of two, myself and my wife Tiffany, uh, to a family of four over uh, the last couple years by the means of adoption. And most recently, about a month ago, we did adopt a new baby girl uh, who Josh introduced this morning, uh, Elena Hope, and it is our joy to do so. And talking to many of the folks across the congregation uh, and also people who are outside of the church, I know that adoption has touched uh, a lot of the families who are here in this room today and a lot of the families um, who might be listening to me online. And adoption is a relatively common event um, within, within our culture today. And whether you or your children or maybe a friend has been adopted, it's not an uncommon experience. And even if you can't think of anybody off the top of your head right now who has been adopted, which I kind of just gave you two of them, my two children, um, I submit to you that adoption has touched every single believer who's listening to me right now. You know, a moment ago, I opened our time together um, praying to God in heaven, and I addressed him as Father. And in doing so, I was really calling upon the promise that Jesus left with us in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 11. And there he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? And then in that, I asked him to bless our time together, to work within us, to give us his spirit, and to make us more like him. And so it could be asked, then how could a sinner such as me, even if I've been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ, be so bold as to still ask God for anything and expect him to give it to us? Well, it's just as Jesus spoke. It's because the believer is not just granted access to heaven instead of the lake of fire for all of eternity when we uh, come under the blood of Christ. But it's because the believer becomes a child of God and God becomes his father that we can let those requests be made known to him. And what I hope that you will see and what I hope to encourage you to give thanks for and to glorify God for this morning is that this relationship to God as father is because of adoption. You know, adoption is one of the greatest and I would say perhaps one of the most overlooked doctrines of our salvation. 
and yet the pages of Scripture are filled with it. Think about all of the different references to God as our Father, references to us as children of God, at least for those who have been redeemed. And they all reflect this adoption motif. And it's easy for folks to chalk up uh, doctrines like justification or sanctification as the preeminent doctrines of our faith. And I'd by no means want to uh, diminish those doctrines. But I think that we would be remiss if we did not set adoption right next to both of those. And as we'll see this morning as we work through the text, adoption puts on display the overwhelming abundance of the grace which God pours out on his redeemed. It could have been enough for us to know the love, the tenderness, the grace, the mercy and the kindness of God to grant forgiveness to us and to give us his righteousness. That could have been enough. But God went further and he demonstrates the abundance of his grace and not only saving us from sin, but from giving us an inheritance with him. He calls us sons and we cannot know the fullness of God's grace apart from a proper understanding of the adoption that makes that title son possible. And now, before we actually get to the text this morning, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4, but before we get there, and to help us better understand the richness of this illustration of adoption, we're going to take a moment, we're going to step into the historical context of how those uh, in the New Testament era would have understood adoption And as always, in biblical interpretation, it's important for us to refrain from attempting to bring the scriptures only forward to the modern culture. Rather, we need to take ourselves backwards to the culture, the time, the place, and the people of the world who originally received it in order for us to actually have a proper understanding. Then after we do that, we can begin to bring it forward for application. And so as we consider adoption, you may be surprised to know that in Greek and Roman culture, Adoption was a relatively common, and it was a very highly esteemed practice, especially among the upper class. So much so that nine of the Caesars were adopted. However, adoption in the Roman and the Greek cultures uh, differed considerably from modern adoption. You know, if you think about modern adoption, it usually has uh, some element of love and charity. But in uh, adoptions in the Roman society, they were almost exclusively of males and they were almost exclusively of males in their 20s and 30s. And so as you can imagine from that demographic, that the aim or the purpose of adoption uh, was very different than what we might have today. Instead, the primary aim was to identify a suitable heir for the family when the patriarch died. If the patriarch of that family, or excuse me, the patriarch had total rule over the family under what is called patria potestas, He had the power to disown a child, to sell a son for adoption, or even put a child to death for whatever reason that he wanted. So if a father had no sons, or if he felt the sons that he had would not lead a family well after his death, he might consider adopting a new son from the lower class who demonstrated the desirable qualities necessary to advance the family and possibly even later lead as the head of the family or take on the role of the patriarch of that family. It was a very costly legal transaction, and so it was uh, pretty much only the upper class who had the opportunity uh, to adopt. And frequently, this provided a great opportunity for families of the lower class 
their son would be elevated in social status and he would be set on a trajectory for great success within uh, the country. And they would receive, that is, the, uh, the previous family would receive a large payment that could significantly improve their living conditions. Once the adoption was publicly finalized before witnesses, the adopted son completely transferred all aspects of his former family and life in that family to his new family. All connections to and privileges of the former life and family were canceled, even to include any debts that he might have owed to anyone. He was completely and totally secure under the paterfamilias or the uh, patriarch of the new family to which he was adopted. He received full rights as a son to include the family inheritance. And it has even been noted that the adopted son was more secure than a biological son because after that adoption was finalized, he could not be disowned. To be adopted in that society was a great honor that brought significant blessings to the man who otherwise had no hope of changing his social status. So as we read about Paul's illustration here in Galatians chapter 4, this is what he had in mind and what his readers would have understood when he began uh, using the image of adoption, and they wouldn't have needed this big, long explanation that I just provided. And so with this framework in mind, Please open your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 if you haven't already. And we're going to be starting in verse 1. The main focus this morning is going to be on verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning, uh, let me catch us up a little bit. We're picking up in the middle of the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians uh, was written to a group of four churches in southern Galatia who had been founded by Paul. And these churches had come under attack by people who have been called Judaizers. They were Jews who wanted to uh, attempt to convince Christians that in addition to believing in Jesus Christ, they also had to keep the Mosaic law if they wanted to be saved. And all the way throughout the book of Galatians, Paul is contending for the true gospel that salvation is not based on the works of man, but on God's grace through faith. It's a call to faith in the work of Christ instead of the enslavement of legalism. And as we arrive at chapter 4, Paul just finished explaining that the law of Moses was given as a means uh, or a tutor to bring us to spiritual maturity and seeing our need for a Savior. And then particularly to seeing our need for Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what we'll see in this passage as we go through these seven verses is the process by which God has adopted believers to be heirs and that he's bringing them out of slavery into sonship and all the blessings that come with it. And so with that, let's read verses 1 through 7. And I will be reading from the New American Standard. Now I say, as long as an heir is a child, he he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Son of his Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so as we break down this passage and as we work from uh, verse 1 through 7, there's really three questions that will kind of set the outline for what um, we're going to be talking about. 
The first is why is adoption necessary? Then we'll move into how adoption was made possible. And then finally, we'll talk about what the outcome of the believer's adoption actually is. And so for the first question, why is adoption necessary? Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. He says, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. Paul here is borrowing from another common custom across Jewish, Greek, and Roman cultures. In that day, uh, it was a very definite moment when a child moved out of childhood and adolescence and immaturity to adulthood. Formal ceremonies of adulthood were common. For the Jew, is the bar mitzvah at 12 years of age where that boy would become a man and commit himself to the commandments of the Lord. In Greece, it was the day set by the father where the boy's long hair was cut off and offered to the god Apollo. And for the Roman, it was the day that the boys would bring their toys and girls would bring their dolls and they would offer them as a sacrifice to their gods. And it's this picture that Paul had in mind when he spoke in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, that he did away with childish things. And so uh, uh, before this ceremony, though, the child had no authority and very little responsibility over the assets of his father. And in this sense, the child does not differ at all from a slave. And in fact, as we just read in verse 2, he was even subservient to the slaves of his father's household, those who were placed over him um, as guardians and managers of his father's household until that date that was set by the father to transition him out of immaturity to maturity. And so that brings us to verse 3, where Paul, under the Holy Spirit, uses this very familiar concept to his readers to illustrate a spiritual truth. And verse 3 makes clear, or makes that more clear, in saying, So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Before coming to faith in Jesus, we were all held in bondage, or we were slaves to the elemental things of the world. And if you want to know what those elemental things were, look with me, if you will, down in verse 8. He says, However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature are no gods. They were all the things that we worship that are not God at all. And Colossians 2.8 goes on and describes this enslavement as enslavement to the philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. It's the elementary and spiritually childish nature of man-made religion, and it can really all be summed up in saying that it is a religion based upon human works rather than the blood of Christ and the grace that God gives us through faith in him. And this is when we were not part of God's family. Prior to coming to Christ, all believers were, as Ephesians chapter 2 puts it, dead in your trespasses and sins, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. We had no hope. We were without God in the world. And we were as the Pharisees in John 8. um, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It's because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you do the desires of your father. So this brings us back to the original question that I posed for verses 1 through 3. Why is adoption necessary? 
It's necessary because apart from salvation, we are in darkness and follow after a father of sin. We were dead with no hope of moving up, if you will, in the spiritual hierarchy. We earned the wages of death in our sin, and we needed to be given new life. And so with that need of new life, that brings us uh, to verses 4 and 5 and how that adoption was made possible. Let's read 4 and 5. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. In Roman adoption, or even in adoption in our day, it's an act of the adoptive parents who initiates this transaction. The legal process of initiating an adoption is very lengthy, it's very complex, and for uh, those of you who have gone through it, you can probably testify with me that it's, it feels like myriads of background checks, myriads of home studies, uh, all kinds of different uh, formalized training that you have to accomplish. In the end, it's not something that just happens, and frankly, it won't happen apart from a dedicated effort by the adoptive parents. And from the other point of view, from the adoptee's point of view, an adoption doesn't just happen because someone wakes up one day and says, you know, I think I want to be adopted today. There has to be a parent. And in this case, a father figure who will reach into your situation and pull you out of the situation uh, which you naturally would have been in. Likewise, it was not us who initiated the adoption that God accomplished, but it was him. He says here that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. God is the initiator of the believer's adoption. The proceeding formally began to unfold in his predetermined time to send his son, and he had promised to send his son all the way back in Genesis 3. And he did so in Jesus precisely at the right time, according to his determination. Some reasons for it to have been at the right time include that at that time, there's a relatively uh, peace, there's a relative amount of peace across the Roman Empire. There was a network of roads and a common language which allowed the gospel to spread rapidly. There's a protected monotheism which the Jews had um, secured, which provided a, a groundwork for Christianity to begin. There's a strong messianic hope. There's a fulfillment of many prophecies. Consider the timing that had to be so precise for the details of um, the details to cause Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem based upon Caesar's edict at the exact time of Jesus' birth so that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem according to passages like Micah 5.2 where he says, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity." There are many other prophecies like that that likewise had to be fulfilled at exactly the right time. And honestly, the list could go on enough to make a sermon all of its own uh, out of this very point. But suffice it to say for our time this morning that it was God who set the timing for the coming of his son and specifically the timing to initiate the adoption of each and every believer. Listen to Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. 
And so it was the will of God. It was God who predestined. It was God who chose to adopt those who he would redeem. So we have to affirm that God was the major player in our adoption. And yet, just like the Roman idea of adoption, the adoption that God accomplished was not free. The eternal God whose goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity, from Micah 5.2, and the very Son of God humbled himself and took on humanity as one born of a woman, just like you and me. He was born fully under the law. That meant that he also had the requirement to keep and uphold the fullness of the requirements of the law found in the Old Testament. And he had to do this in order to bring us with him out of spiritual immaturity as slaves under the law to spiritual adulthood as sons under God our Father. In verse 5, let's read that again. It explains this. So that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He explains here that he redeemed those who are under the law. When we think about the word redeemed, it means that those whom he adopts to be his own were set free at a price. And it was an extremely high price. It cost him everything. Now, unlike Roman adoption, this price was not paid to our previous family. It was not a price that was paid to the devil, who was once our father, But by his blood, Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that was aroused against us by our sin. And I'm going to read a series of verses out of Romans, which uh, many of us have probably heard. But just think about the the price. Think about the cost as I read these um, that Jesus had to pay in order to redeem us, in order to pay for that adoption, to bring us into his family and make us heirs with him. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a man who's walked on the face of the planet aside from Jesus Christ who does not have sin. And that sin, in Romans 1.18, brings the wrath of God. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Then hope comes in Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And then Romans 3, 24 and 25, being justified by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or as a payment in his blood through faith. And so there was a payment that was made in order to adopt us. And the payment was made to satisfy the wrath of God. But when we are purchased, or when we are redeemed at the price that was Christ's blood poured out on behalf of, on our behalf through faith, he becomes the curse for us. And we are plucked out of our old life and all of our debts are canceled and we now belong to the God of heaven as one of his adopted sons. We receive all of the blessings of sonship and Christ's righteousness is given to us And we are moved out of the domain of wickedness as enemies of God, and we receive reconciliation to the Father. But what else happens when we are redeemed and adopted by God? Well, that's what verses 6 and 7 will talk about. So verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. When we are adopted, God places his Son in us, excuse me, he places his spirit in us. 
It's the same spirit of Christ. This spirit transforms how we approach God and he gives us a new nature. We no longer come to God purely in fear and trembling, but we now cry out to him as our beloved father. And we cry out to him, Abba, the word for daddy. That's a very intimate, it's a very loving, it's a very uh, tender way to refer to your father. And it brings joy. Turn with me for a moment over to Romans chapter 8. We're going to talk a little bit more about how God gives us his spirit through adoption. We're going to be picking up in uh, verse 12, and we're going to read down through verse 17. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. As recipients of the Spirit of God through his adoption, we receive a completely new nature. We are no longer enslaved by our flesh, but by the Spirit of God within us, we have the power to say no to our fleshly and sinful desires. You know, consider this for a moment. Back in uh, Matthew 7 and verse 11, Jesus said that the Father will give what is good to those who ask him. And then in the parallel passage of uh, Luke eleven thirteen, that good is amplified and clarified as being that he gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. This spirit being the same spirit that resided in Christ, the same spirit who is intimately involved in creation, the same spirit that indwelt the men who did mighty acts in the Old Testament. You know, you go down through the Old Testament, think about Moses, think about Joseph, the judges, David, the prophets. It's the same spirit who empowers believers with spiritual gifts for the edification of the church and the glory of God. It's this spirit whom the Father gives to those who ask. And so God does not just give his children good things. Even in that, he goes above and beyond and he gives them the source of every good thing. And here in Romans 8, uh, we read that our new nature and all of the good that comes from it is made possible by the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells within his children. Furthermore, we learn that the Holy Spirit is the one who testifies to us and to others that we are God's children. He fulfills the duty of the witnesses required to confirm a Roman adoption. As he confirms our salvation, he also confirms to us that our hope of being an heir of God along with his son is secure. We have hope for the resurrection and all good things in eternity because the Holy Spirit testifies to us that his promises are real. You know, it could be said that the Holy Spirit is the down payment of everything that we hope for. Because having also believed, that is, having believed in Christ, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. If you're being led by the Spirit of God, then you will be putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And you can rest assured that you also have been purchased by the blood of Jesus and redeemed 
as an adopted son of God. However, this assurance can be shaken if you are harboring sin in your life. If you continually grieve the Holy Spirit by returning to the deeds of the flesh, like we're supposed to be putting to death in verses 12 and 13 here, you may not be able to fully lay hold of the confidence that he offers you as we, in that we might not be able to lay hold of the confidence that he offers us as we come under his loving discipline. So I encourage you today that if you do not share in the confidence of the testimony of the Spirit of God, then you should examine your life and ask some very serious questions. Have you repented of your sin? That's the most basic. Has your mind been fundamentally changed to admit that you were living in enmity with God, deserving his wrath as a result of our sin? Have you confessed with the word of God that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness? Have you received Jesus' death on the cross as the payment satisfying God's wrath in your place? And if you go down those questions and you can answer yes to those, then there are some additional questions you might want to ask. Have you returned to your former manner of life? Are you again living in disobedience according to the flesh? Do you need to return to your first love? the love of Jesus Christ? Is your lack of assurance a time of discipline to increase your longing and your love for Christ? These are all questions that we ought to consider if we are not confident that we are sons of God. But at the same time, a believer ought to remember the promise of Hebrews 12, 5 through 7. Because it may be that a lack of confidence for a period of time is a measure of God's loving discipline. He says there that my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. And so as an adopted son of God, the spirit can even testify to the sonship that we have received through the discipline that he might bring into our lives during that period. But returning to the confidence that we enjoy in our salvation under Christ, let's also return back to Galatians chapter 4. Verse 7, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So then the believer is no longer a slave under the law. The believer is no longer in this spiritual immaturity resided to uh, the religion of human works. But positionally, the believer is a grown son with all of the rights and privileges of an heir. And there is a very clear difference between a son and a slave. Sons share a nature with the Father. And we now also share that nature by having the same spirit reside within us. We no longer have a master, but we have a father. We obey him out of love instead of obeying out of fear. We now have a rich inheritance that the slave does not enjoy. And not only this, but we Also, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8, 23. Our adoption is secure. God has made the pavement required, yet we are eagerly awaiting the finality of this adoption. And we persevere by keeping our eyes forward on the precious hope of the return of Christ and our resurrection where we will dwell with him and share in rich blessing of his glory. But until that day, until the resurrection, until the return of Christ, 
what are we to do? Well, Ephesians 1, 6 tells us that he predestined us to adoption for the purpose of the praise of the glory of his grace. If you are redeemed, you are predestined to that position, and you are a child of God, and because of that, you ought to give thanks. You ought to be one of the most thankful people on the face of the planet because of this adoption which God has accomplished uh, on our behalf to the praise of the glory of his grace. And as we consider how we can properly glorify him, there's no doubt that praise will certainly come through our lips and words and through songs, but we must also glorify him by clinging to and believing his promises, like these promises of adoption where he promises that we will be heirs with him. And in that, we ought to also strive to cleanse our lives from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness and the fear of God, just like we saw in Romans chapter 8. And since we're adopted sons, then as obedient children, we are exhorted, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, those lusts of the flesh. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So until the resurrection and until Christ's return, glorify God. Glorify God by obeying him. Glorify God by giving thanks and praising him. Praise him. Thank him for saving us. Praise him and thank him for giving us his righteousness. Thank him even for his fatherly discipline. Thank him for making us holy. Thank him for his mercy. And thank him that he didn't stop there. But he showed the abundance of his grace and went even further to make us heirs with his son. Thank him for his great love. For see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Believer, Live in that truth today. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, we thank you for rescuing us out of our sin. We thank you for rescuing us from the wrath of you that we have stored up because of our sin. And we thank you, Father, for redeeming us by the blood of Jesus, for paying the price that's required to make us sons of you. And as sons, Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have an inheritance with you, that we get to share in the glory of your son, Jesus. Lord, it would have been enough to have saved us, but you went beyond to teach us more of your grace, to demonstrate more of who you are by giving us a position next to Christ. And for that, we give thanks. For that, we praise you. And we pray that, Lord, we would not lose sight of this truth, but that each day we would honor you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our King.